Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Glenn Keyes and Andrew Walker were school friends first, growing up together in the harbour city of Newcastle in Australia. They then both began their careers in the Australian Army before going on to set up businesses. They were looking for an opportunity to work together when a call came from a friend that alerted them to a problem they believed they might be able to solve. Ben and I were talking and I said, hey, mate, why don't we just do something together? We get your business development genius, my business experience and maybe even my medical background and we do something in that sphere. But we didn't really have an idea of what we were going to do. Andrew and I both got a very, very good friend who lives in England who was a surgeon and I was over there for work. Damien called me up and said, Tony Blair is going to change how healthcare is done. He needs to dramatically reduce surgery waiting lists. So Glenn and I looked at the problem and Glenn immediately recognised that we actually didn't need to add anything because we were thinking about putting mobile hospitals into cities and then moving them around to take care of waiting lists. But Glenn identified very early on that we could go into the present infrastructure and just redefine the way they worked. So, for example, instead of working defined hours, we'd work through the night. We'd get doctors to come and do two shifts instead of one. So we tried to bring some flexible workforce practices to it. And uh, if you think about it, it takes hundreds of millions of pounds and years to build a hospital. But there was all this spare capacity just sitting inside the hospitals. And luckily for us, there were some people who'd been deliberately brought into the NHS at some senior levels whose idea was to shake it up. So we convinced them to pay us to do a consultancy. And so we developed what they called a beacon project, where we would show how you could take orthopaedic waiting lists and get it from two years down to six months in the first phase, and then the second phase from six months down to six weeks. And just remember, Jonathan, at this time, the company had the total number of staff of two. The office was Glenn's dining room with his dining table. Now, we didn't let that be known at the time. We had some great business cards, fantastic website. And... uh, they turned around and said, well, okay, great, guys. Now deliver it instead. And that was, to be honest, that was a perfect opportunity. At that time, we didn't have a database. So now we've got a database of over 5,000 staff worldwide who are credentialed. Back then we had none. So Andrew, from his other business, kindly loaned me his EA. And she and I sat down with a phone book because there was no internet listing. And we rang orthopedic surgeons and anaesthetists. It started in Sydney went to Melbourne and went to Brisbane and we just rang every single one of them and said how would you like to go to England for anywhere between six weeks and three months to clear orthopaedic surgery waiting lists and we got about a dozen who said that'd be great so Andrew did all the credentialing of the staff he reviewed all of their qualifications to check they were going to be right I was over in England working with the GMC to get them registered so that we could bring them in. We hired nursing staff we knew well who were project managers, so we set them up and we had our seven sites 
I did the audits of the facilities because they were saying, you can't use our facilities, they're too full. So we'd go in to do an audit. I'd look at it and go, so your surgery all finishes at four in the afternoon? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So why can't we operate after four? Well, no one would want to come. We just don't do that. And I said, have we asked a patient who's been waiting with a dodgy hip for two years? But we had to really sell the story because, you know, the nursing unions, and we had to really, you know, show the benefits and what we're doing is going to have a very positive outcome for just about everyone. Mm. And we got everyone on site. It came down to being about an outcome. So much of healthcare is around the wrong requirement. People go, we need more doctors. We need more doctors. We need more hospital space. That's an input, yes. right? I need more things to go in. Then someone says... Maybe what I really need is I need more operations. That's an output. But what we did were outcomes. So what we did was we said to everybody, you'd go, doctors would go, oh, well, I don't know if I want to operate there. This is about the patient. We want to get to having healthy people in England. We want people who can walk and run and, and be with their families. And so we have tagless. You know, we want to get a group who can walk for Christmas. And it breaks down suddenly. It's not about the doctor or the hospital or the management or the porters. It's actually about the patient. So only in the last couple of years have people been going, oh, my God, patient-centred care. Patient-centred. Isn't that incredible? And we're sitting there going... <laughs> 2003. Yeah, it's amazing. What a great concept, patient-centred care. And that's what we focused on. And the surgeons we had and the anaesthetists were brilliant. But when you say to them, here's a chance for you to go in and do what no one's done, you are going to help clear a waiting list that is blighting the north of England and people who've not been able to walk or get out and enjoy themselves and you can be part of that, actually it didn't become a hard ask. So we really got known as the go-to guys for that. So we've done waiting lists in say Ireland or Australia and many places. But at the same time when all this frenetic activity was going on, the Australian government wanted to outsource a complete health solution to the Solomon Islands. They want to put in a surgical hospital in the Solomon Islands to support the almost outbreak of civil war that was occurring there. And um, at the time, most of the defence forces were rotating through Iraq and they were getting deployment fatigue. So they were saying, we need to find a a private solution for this because it's difficult. And this would have been the first time ever that a government had outsourced healthcare in a combat area. And so we put in a bid for this particular job and we won it. So now we've got these two major contracts on the other side of the world and really the company is so new and we were relying on the goodwill of all our new recruits being stretched. How long had you been going? Six months. And we had, again, short time frames. And then the government turned around and says, and we want you guys to guarantee that if this falls over and we have to send in the troops to replace you, you have liquidated damages of $100 million. How does that make you feel? Well, it didn't make us feel too good. But we didn't have a choice because they'd never been done. No defence force in the world had ever outsourced everything in a healthcare setting. So the buildings, the equipment, the people, the cold chain logistics, the accommodation. Cleaning, the laundry. And as Andrew said, surgery was one of the most complicated pieces. But we were also doing pathology, we were doing radiology, we were doing dental, we were doing ambulance. We had to have all the stores. We had medical evacuation. Environmental health. So we're in a tropical zone, right? So you've got mosquitoes and rats and dogs. So you're doing all of the water testing, the food testing, the vector management against that stuff. All of this had to be stood up and we had eight weeks from the day we signed the contract to the day we had to be fully operational. We had to buy everything. 
So we had to buy the only mobile surgery in Australia. We had to buy so, all the equipment. So we're supporting the cash flows of doing 5,000 hip and knees replacements in, in the UK. Now all of a sudden we're going to buy all this kit. So you can imagine you go into an insurer and say, we want you to insure our mobile hospital in the Solomon Islands. And they go, you want us to insure a bit of kit in a war zone? You're joking! So we had to then make a submission to Lloyd's. And we had to go and present to names in Lloyd's to get them to sign off for the insurance policy. So, so we had to understand the risk, then we had to mitigate the risk, and then we had to price the risk, and then we had to do a pitch to explain to them, it sounds bad, combat zone, war zone. We're inside the wire, we're not outside the wire, we've got an entire defence force supporting us, we'll be fine, it's okay. But not only did we have to get insurance, we had to get the funds. Yes. This mobile surgery had been out from the UK, it had been out to do a trial, and it was sitting on the dock in Sydney, and the next day it was going back. And if we hadn't secured it that day, that day. it would be sailing for three months to England, then take a month to turn around, and three months back to the Solomon Islands, and the project would have failed. And funding grounds take months to raise. Where do you get cash? We emptied our bank accounts. We mortgaged our home. And Glenn cracked up a quarter of a million dollars on his personal credit card. So he rings me one night and he says, Andrew, I don't feel well. I said, what's the matter? My heart is jumping out of my chest. I can't sleep. And over the phone, it was obviously had palpitations. It's like, okay, mate. So I'm, I'm on the plane the next day trying to help get everything back in, into kilter. It was tricky and challenging times, I can tell you that. So look, we, we then rolled both those projects out. We met all of the requirements in the UK. We rolled out in the Solomon Islands and we met it. And we set the benchmark for how we were going to run these things. That meant that after that, everybody knew what we could do. So when the Australian government went into East Timor, one of the newest countries of the world, and they said, right, we've got to move in, we've got to be there quickly, how soon can you set up? And we said, well, we did it in eight weeks last time. So we think we can set up. It's the same thing again, a complete surgery, the whole nine yards. In six weeks... And I knew, because I was putting the project schedule together, that that's what they needed. They had to fly everybody out on a certain date for their mm -hmm. rotation, so we had six weeks. But, you know, governments being what they are, tender evaluations take a little bit longer. So we won the tender and they called us up and said, so that 20 July date, you can still make that. And I said, well, that it's a six-week schedule and you've now gone a week and a half into that. So it's only four and a half weeks. They said, but you said you could do it by the 20th of July. And you go, well... When we I had, could. I could when we had then. six weeks, not now at four and a half. And go, it has to be by the 20th of July. So we stood up, we moved all of the equipment in, the facilities, the staff, and were commissioned and tested in four and a half weeks. We had aircraft meeting other aircraft on the airfield of Darwin and swapping people across. We got customs to meet guys as they walk off the stairs, stamp their passport and move them onto the other stairs to get onto the aircraft to fly away. One of the things we're particularly proud about that job is that Ramos Horto, the Nobel Peace Laureate, who was the president of East Team all the time, was shot in an assassination attempt by high-velocity weapons. And it was our teams that took him off the firefight, got him back to our hospital. We operated on him, we saved his life. We medically evacuated him back to Darwin. And it was actually even our ambulance that took him around to Royal Darwin Hospital. And when he recovered, he came back to the country. He went to the gravesite of the individual who tried to kill him and forgave him. So suddenly he diffuses the civil war in Timor and, and saves thousands of lives and years worth of unrest. And then he calls us up and said, 
I'd like to see all of your people. We get all our people over and he presents the Timorese Solidarity Medal to all of our staff for saving the life of the president. And it's been said that we changed the destiny of the nation because had that not happened, it would have descended into civil war, the country would have been put back 20 years. But you know, doing Solomons, doing East Timor, doing UK, we came to be known as a bit of the go-to guys. If you, you know, who are you going to call? Aspen Busters, right? So we, um, over time, helped eradicate Ebola in West Africa. We're currently on the front lines in, in Mosul. And one of the stories is this pregnant woman who's hiding from ISIS in, in a basement, doesn't know what to do, she's getting dehydrated, she's starving, she's pregnant, she finally decides to get help, she comes out of her little basement hidey hole, gets on the street and she's shot by an ISIS sniper in the abdomen, bullet pierces her and the fetus. She's dragged off the streets, put in one of her ambulances, takes back to our hospital. Our Iraqi surgeons who are amazing, not only saved the woman, but saved the fetus and both mother and child are doing nicely. Now that's an amazing capability. And we sit back and just look at that and say, well, that's what it's about. You know, when we started in 2003, we just didn't want to make a business that makes money. We want to make a business that has an impact on the people, but maybe not just the people, a community, and the big stretch, maybe the world, who knows? Yeah, it is now a big it operation. Is. We're over 2,000 staff, we're in 12 countries around the world. Why aren't more people getting into this? What's the barriers to entry? Well, look, when we started, it was very unique. And there have been others who've tried. But it's not really their core. And I think the reason why we've been so successful is we don't muck about with this purpose for business stuff. It's in our DNA. We attract amazing staff. Glenn and I would not be here talking to you without the staff. And we have the lowest turnover of staff. In our come to our offices, and you don't see beanbags, coke machines, and football machines, right? We put people in harm's way, but they want to work for us because they know we'll look after them. They'll know we'll give them the loyalty back. They know that when they do something, they're doing it for a purpose, not just to make a buck. They also know that we'll lose money on a contract if it means keeping our people safe. Mm. Yeah, we have to lose money on a contract from the beginning, but our people are safe. That's more important to us. And they know that last board meeting we went into Mosul, the whole board said, everyone comes home, no matter what the cost. So we have to build that into the pricing, and if we need more and, and the customer can't, well, we'll, we'll just take the hit. Very comfortable to do that. We did the Ebola response on behalf of the Australian government and the US government, and then we took over two clinics on behalf of the UK government. We had 1,000 staff, so 200 expats, 800 locals. So we recruited 800 African clinical staff who now have been trained in some of the best infectious disease processes in the world. So they're in place now for the next one. But there's also now 200 experts back in the UK and Australia and Canada and the US who've now also been trained in those skills. So they're back out there in their organisations with those skills. But we did not get one single staff member infected. Average infection rate amongst health workers was 20%. And of those 20%, best case, 40% would die. So of our 1,000 staff, including 800 African nationals, we would expect 80 to die on that contract. Not one got infected. What was it that you were doing? A lot of it goes down to our systems. So we planned from the start. Risk management's an absolutely critical part of what we do. So we did that work. We identified the training, accreditation, auditing. We dispatched people immediately to York to do the MOD, Ebola course. People do Geneva to do the WHO. People do Atlanta to do the CDC course. Came back, developed the world's best procedures. We set up an Ebola treatment centre on the third floor of our offices, a mock one. 
And it was rigorous. And it was right on the top floor, so it's November in Australia, which is hot because that's our summer. And so people are there getting in and out of all of the clothing, all the PPE. Their sweat is running down and they're there going, right, I need to have a haircut. I need to get booms on my glasses. I need to practice this. And they were there. They were in the moment, even though they're sitting in the middle of Canberra in a, in a unit. The fact that we were getting... I still remember one guy's glasses slipped off his face as getting dressed. He went, I have to stop. My glasses have dropped onto an infector service. What do I do now? And everybody's going, right, don't move. What we're going to do is this, that, and the other. But our equipment was the best, and it was the heaviest, which means you need more staff. Because when you're in heavy equipment, you can't stay in it for too long. If you're in light equipment, you can. So light equipment may do a longer shift. Our heavy equipment, which is much more protective, you've got to rotate people more through. So therefore, we need more staff. We to pay for that. But happily pay for more staff who are exposed at a lesser time. Um, rather than have someone who goes in with less equipment, does a longer shift. You know, from a commercial point of view, it wasn't very clever, but from a safety point of view, we developed the system that made it very, very, very uh, powerful. We still made money out of the contract, we did well, but, you know, I think that thing, we reduced the fatality rate from almost 95% down to less than 40% in that clinics we operated, and not one single staff member I asked Bernd Vogel, Associate Professor of Leadership at Henley Business School, to comment on the Aspen medical story and the way Glenn and Andrew went about finding a solution to a seemingly intractable problem in the UK health service. They were there at the right time, which is often great for entrepreneurs, but they also found a handful of people, it seems, with a similar direction. Then they changed the broader audience in the NHS and challenged them. Then bringing in the picture of the actual patient as a customer, I think that was very, very powerful. And if you create these customer touch points, that's very, very powerful to move people's mindset. And that's basically what they've tried to do. If you see someone cured of a serious illness, that's probably an easy situation to explain the customer. In other companies selling products or services, how do they get that sort of focus what we see often is they actually bring the customer back into the organizations or the employees and managers to the customer, and that's in various ways. You can basically create stories about how things have helped, how, th- how things have changed in the customer's world of view. I personally believe that there's no product that doesn't make a difference to or serves a difference to a customer. But if you don't have such an immediate implication, like in this case, you need to dig for it, you need to understand that, and then you will find that whether that's in retail or in other industries, you always find these stories. And that's really, really helpful because otherwise you have this disconnect between what we're doing day to day and what does that actually do to real people. Not every business goes into war zones, but they do face stresses in building a business. How do you advise people as leaders to deal with that stress? I think in the way, if you're an entrepreneur, that there also seems to be a bit of an appetite for that. And I think that's already the first part of the danger in that because you need to build in somehow you realize that you're going over your personal stress level or resilience. We often talk about resilience nowadays and you need to understand when you're beyond your resilience and I think that's what these two people faced in in one particular situation and that's what others also face and that's basically an identity question. Do I allow myself to admit 
that you know my resources are not endless. And I think that's kind of the thought that you need to start with. And if you can't do that yourself, then you need good advisors or basically mentors or buddies. And we see that actually nicely in the case. Well, actually, we always talk about the individual leader. Here we have two people who collaborate, create leadership, create purpose, where normally that would do one. And that's a great example that you actually can share quite a few of these tasks. So they're also their mutual safety net. If you're an individual entrepreneur, I think the key next step is how do you build a really, really durable, strong team around you as a next step? I think that's the starting point where you share some of the responsibilities and burden around your key ideas and delivery and quality. That's a challenge because you're probably convinced that you're the main resource in the endeavor. So again, it's an identity challenge that you have and stepping back and thinking, what do I add to the business and what could others add to the business and make it better? What do Glenn and Andrew see as the most important ingredients for running a successful business? In what we do, it's about trust and loyalty. We could not have built a business unless we've developed a culture amongst our people of trust and loyalty. If you don't have to worry about quarterly results, if you don't have to worry about short-term profits, you can build a business that develops over time to become quite a powerhouse. There's three principles we always try to operate on. Excellence in financial management, strong people management, and high-quality service delivery. So if in your head you imagine a little Venn diagram, you've got you know those three areas of people, quality, and strong financial management, you draw a circle. That's where we live, right in the centre of that. And you just it becomes a bit of a touchstone. Anyone comes in and says, oh, what about this? Can we meet those three things? What are we doing? Are we looking after our people? Are we, are we managing our fund? Are we providing the best quality care that we can? If your answer to every one of those is yes, you're right. Next week, we talk to a German entrepreneur whose intimate knowledge of Brazil helped him revolutionise cross-border payments for companies trading in Latin America. In the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, you can visit our special page, ft.com slash startup. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. 